Hello and welcome to The Spectator Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, literary editor of The Spectator. And this week, we're going to consider the fact that in modern life, you're often told that thinking positive can get you what you want, that you need to move forward and make progress in your life, that you should try and get in touch with yourself, find yourself and develop yourself, and that the secret of happiness is always over the next hill. Now, with me is Sven Brinkman, who is the author of a new book that says all that is hogwash. Stand Firm, Resisting the Self-Improvement Craze, urges us to say no more often, to look out of our inner life and try and get out more. So it's a very grumpy kind of thesis you've got, isn't it? (laughs) Well, I think it's a uh, realistic thesis. It sort of plays with the idea that we need to perhaps be a bit more grumpy because we have been told for so long to uh, look at the world in, you know as rosy a way as possible. And I think that is problematic in in itself. I think we need to be able to look look at life as it is in all its dimensions. And life is uh, often quite uh, tragic and depressing, and we should be allowed to feel those emotions instead of uh, trying to be happy all the time. That really isn't possible for most of us anyway. Well, one of the things you you talk about in your book, which, which is something that seems to suggest, you know, it's got a special urgency now, that obviously, you know, what you've just said obtained at any time in human history. But you talk about something you call liquid modernity, suggesting that in a way this kind of think positive stuff is much more common now than it was in the past. Yes. I mean, um, when when authors began to write self-help books about this, one of the first is uh, Norman Vincent Peale's book, The Power of Positive Thinking, which, by the way, was uh, read by Donald Trump, and Peale was uh, Trump's uh, minister in Manhattan, but, but that's sort of a story in itself. But, but this is from the, the early 50s. And so in, in the years after the Second World War, and then we had, you know, in 68 with the youth revolt and the counterculture, people really tried to, to break free from you know, old routines and traditions and structures by being themselves, by realizing their inner authentic selves and whatever. And, and that might have worked then. It, it was probably quite emancipatory from, for some people. But now, at least as I see it, this whole uh, process has run out of steam. It's no longer helping us. Now we, we are you know, free to do whatever we feel like doing, at least, that that's what we are told. But people uh, feel more lonely than ever, I think. They feel um, perhaps a sense of meaninglessness. Even in a country like Denmark, a rich, uh, well-functioning society, we have somewhere between 8 and 10% of the population who suffer from depression, just to mention a few things. Obviously, this is very difficult to interpret. And I, I'm not saying that, that uh, all of this has to do with the demand to be positive and, and develop yourself. But I think in some way, these things are related. And people are really becoming exhausted, you know, pressured to constantly develop themselves. They have to be movable, adaptable, changeable. They are never allowed to put down roots. Uh, stability is frowned upon doing your duty, ethical virtues, those kinds of, you know, stabilizing features of our lives are frowned upon. And only this, you know, opportunistic, self-developing, positively thinking person is is wanted. Yeah, I mean, that's a suggestion in your book that actually there's something to do with the sort of condition of of the way the labor market and, you know, modern capitalism works, that this sort of self-help credo is actually very, very helpful to 
as it were, employers, because it gives you a very mobile, very fungible, very sort of pick-up-and-drop-them kind of workforce and much less social structure. Right. If you, if you have put down roots, if you have a lot of experience, if you know what you stand for, then you're not very flexible, you're not very adaptable. Even though it's, it's, it may seem paradoxical or, or at least counterintuitive, those features are no longer uh, wanted. We have all these techniques, particularly in our work lives, that are meant to change people, develop people. For example, the performance and development review. As we practice those in Denmark, you know, I would be asked by my employer, so Sven, where do you see yourself in uh, three years' time, for example? And, and if I were to answer, well, I will be where I am now. I'm done with improving myself. I mean, that would, but, yeah, I would be, I guess, fired. <laughs> or if I said, well, I hope to be able to go back to the way I performed a couple of years ago. I was about, you know, 70% of my uh, current level or something. That was more me. I would also be fired. So there is this demand, this pressure to perform better, optimize yourself, do more, be more, explore new possibilities all the time. And of course, that is one aspect of life. But there is another aspect that we tend to forget, namely that which has to do with stability and with, with my favorite metaphor, you know, the putting down roots, becoming connected, becoming committed, developing stable relationships to, to others as really important, not just for our you know, mental health, if you will, but also for our capacities to, to be uh, ethical beings. You know, if others are to count on me, then I am, in a certain sense, I have to be the same person tomorrow uh, that I was yesterday. I cannot change all the time. I cannot develop all the time if we are to have uh, ethical relationships be between people. There, have, there has to be some kind of self-constancy, as uh, the French philosopher Ricoeur uh, like, liked to put it. Yes, do you also think that there's a problem in a way that if people kind of like to be told what to do, they like to have a place in a hierarchy, and if they're told they haven't, or that whatever befalls them or whatever position they take in society is entirely down to them and to what they want, they're more likely to kind of flounder. I mean, is individualism itself a recipe for depression and disaster? Yes, I think so. I think we should, you know, have a balanced view of these things because if certain authorities uh, determine everything in your life, obviously that is not a good thing. That is not uh, freedom. <laughs> and, and freedom, liberty uh, are certainly uh, important values in, in our societies. But freedom also is not just, you know, being told that whatever is inside of you, you can develop it, you can live according to your own wishes and desires, and it's your responsibility whatever happens in your life. I think that is a very impoverished uh, notion of, of freedom. Freedom is always, as I see it, about you know living in uh, communities, having relationships and commitments. Those aren't really obstacles to freedom. Those are part of of being a free human being. We are not free in a in a vacuum, like you know uh, atoms in a void. That's not freedom. That's just, as I see it, individualism. Does this sort of map onto that kind of contrast between what you might call a traditional social conservative and a kind of neoliberal free market, you know, absolutist that we see certainly in the UK and two strands of conservatism? Right. The, I mean, and this neoliberal idea uh, about the market, about society has really also become an idea about the human being as such. 
So we make ourselves into、uh, commodities that we sell.、Uh, we sell ourselves in the、uh, workplace to the workplace, but also, you know, in romantic relationships. If you look at dating sites or whatever, you know, people articulate themselves or present themselves as commodities that you can measure and, and sell. So I think we have we have this neoliberal ideology of the self everywhere, and it's really,、uh, as I say, doing much damage. Uh, so we need we need antidotes, and the social conservative response is, is certainly one、uh, one of those antidotes. One of the kind of interesting things in your book, you you drop a kind of intriguing hint. You say you took on some of the sort of positive psychologists and you know wrote an essay criticizing them, and the response sounded kind of terrifying and not not very positive. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah. I mean, if I have my tongue in cheek, I would say that the one thing I really like about the positive psychologists is the fact that they are among the most critical people that and negative people that I have ever met. <laughs>、uh, it, it's true. I was, you know, just being interviewed in in, in Danish media about、uh, positive psychology when this whole movement was new, and I had read some critical books. About positive psychology, written by noted American、uh, authors, and I simply just, you know, told the journalist what I had read and, and what my reservations were, and、uh, and they attacked me. The positive psychologists, they they filed a complaint to the principal、uh, at my university,、uh, asking him to to silence me. And obviously, he he wouldn't do that. He、uh, he said, well. Uh, Sven Brinkman can say whatever he wants in the media. If you are、uh, dissatisfied with what he says, you you have to you know respond in the media. D- don't make this into a legal case. Uh, and so n- nothing happened, fortunately. But I was quite、uh, shocked by the fact that my my colleagues, my, I'm a psychologist myself, so my colleagues from psychology would choose to do that instead of you know meeting me with、uh, arguments in、uh, in a public discussion. <laughs> and but but I think this is. That that's not about these people probably as individuals. I think it's more about the fact, or it, it sort of、um, reveals the fact that positive psychology, like many other techniques of of self development, have become big business in in modern society. And so when when someone like me, a professor of psychology at a university, says something negative about what they do, they really feel that they have to、uh, defend their business. It's it's bad for business when when someone says、uh, something like that. Yeah, that makes sense. To stay on psychology, one of the other intriguing things I found in your book was you talked about how you know it, when Freud first proposed the sort of his account of the unconscious, the problem as he saw it was neurosis, which was you know when your desires were thwarted, they reemerged in this kind of neurotic form, and what you've said is that sort of neurosis is now completely off the table. And everybody's got depression because the problem isn't that our desires are thwarted, but that they're given too free rein almost. Yes, I think this is、uh, quite an interesting development, and、uh, I'm not the first one to to notice that how these、uh, symptoms change along with societal transformations and how our psychologies change along with them. So, so it's true with, with Freud. If we have this, you know, Mickey Mouse. Uh, uh, exposition of Freud's theory, much simplified, but、uh, in its simplified version, you know, Freud would say that people have desires, and often they cannot turn their desires into action because what they desire is prohibited. 
They're not allowed to live according to their impulses. So they suppress their desires, and then they become neurotic. So the neurosis is really a pathology that you have when you want too much. But now the problem is not wanting too much. Wanting a lot is good. It's almost impossible to want too much because we should be entrepreneurial, we should be innovative, creative, thinking outside of the box. This is the kind of person that is sought for in, uh, in, in modern life. So now our problem is the opposite, wanting too little, not having enough drive, not having enough desire. Anhedonia, as it's called in, in psycholingo, and anhedonia is really the core characteristic of depression. So now we no longer live in the age of neurosis, we live in the age of depression. And the depressed person is a kind of person who is not flexible and adaptable and movable enough. So in caricature, you said, you know, you, people used to complain they weren't having as much sex as they wanted, and now they don't want as much sex as they're supposed to be having. Exactly, yes. I also, I mean, one of the things that's beguiling about your book is that it's presented itself as a kind of self-help book, um, which is one of the nice things you say. So you've got a kind of six-point plan. In fact, sorry, a seven-point plan for what, what needs to be done. You say, cut out the navel-gazing, focus on the negative... Put on your no hat. I particularly like your no hat. In an age of pussy hats, I imagine you'd have a kind of alternative alternative process. Suppress your feelings, sack your coach, read a novel, and dwell on the past. Now, the couple in there I wanted to pick out on, I mean, the no hat. Can you tell me a bit about that? There is a line in your book where you say, underneath the no hat lurks the laughing cow, which makes me think you've got a triangle of cheese on your head. What, what did you mean by that? Yeah, the the translator of my book has really done, I, I think, a, a very good job in, in looking for English equivalents to my Danish examples and uh, ways of using language. And it, it isn't always easy. But in, in Danish, we actually have an expression. We say whenever someone resists something, oh, I don't want to do that, then a manager, for example, can say, well, put on the yes hat. Come on, be positive. Say yes. You have to say yes to new challenges. Don't see it as a problem. It's really just a challenge, and you can solve it and grow as a human being. And uh, I think people are sick and tired of this way of being treated. It's like, you know, the ways we treat cows. We, we, we want cows to be uh, servile, you know, to do what we expect of them. But human beings shouldn't be uh, like that. Human beings, we, we value independency, creative... No, sorry, yeah, also that, but critical thinking... These things are cornerstones in a modern society. We want to teach our children to, to think independently and make up their own minds and sometimes say no. Yeah, I'm not sure I want my children to say no all that often. I know, it's really annoying when they say no. But, but the first time they say no is really a milestone in their development. It's, it's a sign that they are on the path to becoming mature adult human beings who may, you know, function in, in a democracy. Uh, but but uh, I agree completely. <laughs> I mean, they should, we shouldn't teach our children to only wear the no hat. We should teach them to wear all sorts of hats. The yes hat, the no hat, the I don't know hat, the I'm in doubt hat. But the problem is that the way we treat, uh, especially people, employees in the labor market, is as if, you know, they were, were children and they should only be allowed to say yes and wear the yes hat. And I think it's uh, really infantilizing them. And we should value, and good managers, good leaders do value people who say what they think, who point out the problems that they see. Businesses, organizations, 
that have that kind of management will thrive in the long run, whereas those um, organizations that only have, you know, the yes-men will, will, will often develop problems because, you know, um, groupthink and what have we. Everyone agrees that this is the right path, etc., and then no one dares to to be the odd one out that says, well, we actually do have a problem yeah, here. And feel the fear and do it anyway is a good kind of motto for the Darwin challenge, isn't it? Can we also move on to something you said, which intrigued me, read a novel. I mean, I'm a literary editor, so I'm in favour of people reading novels, but where does that fit into your scheme? Yes, it's probably the most popular step in my seven-step guide. Everybody likes that. No one likes to be sacked like the coaches or think negative, but read a novel is popular. But but I mean it quite uh, seriously. And I mean it because the, the full sentence is, read a novel, not a self-help book or a biography. So I was looking at best-selling books, and they are very often self-help books, self-improvement books, books about how to become uh, happy, successful, rich, healthy, wealthy <laughs> by following seven steps or something like that. Or they are biographies about uh, footballers or politicians or what have we. And I think these genres present life in a very linear way. You know, I did this and then that happened and then I succeeded. Or do this, do that, and then you will achieve your goal. I think that is illusory. Normally, you know, it's complicated. It's full of problems and uh, tragedies. And I think novels, even though they are fiction, present life much more truthfully than, than these uh, linear genres. Isn't that a bit more true of sort of, you know, political and celebrity autobiography than it is of biography proper? I mean, that was where I had a slight beef because I thought, actually, the randomness and the meaningless reversals that we experience and that you ask us to kind of prepare for in some ways are, you know, they're right there in the biographies of real people living real lives. Novels always have a kind of artistic shape to them, don't they? Yeah, no, that, that, that's a fair point. The, I, I, and I, myself, you know, I do read biographies, uh, autobiographies. Uh, one of my favorites is uh, Karl-Ove Knausgård, the Norwegian writer who has written these thousands of pages about his own life. But what he does is writing exactly about, you know, all the twists and turns and defeats and uh, worries and everything he has in his life to make a truthful account. So it's hard to say, actually, whether he writes novels or, or is it a, an, an autobiography. And, and it really isn't important because it's, it's a true account of a life, I think. And that's the most important thing. And you can find truth in fiction, uh, I believe, just as you can find biographies that are actually betraying the real nature of, of, of a life. One thing that doesn't enter substantially into your book, but I'd be interested to know where you you know, what you think about it is the question of religion and how that's shaped the situation we're in now. Because it seems to me there is this turning, which your book addresses, between a society in which your rights and duties and obligations in the public sphere have sort of switched over to being much more interior and personal and private and, you know, this idea of the individual soul. And the Reformation seems to have, you know, in most of Western culture, bridged that between a kind of, as some people say, a shame society and a guilt society. I mean, do you think there's a sort of religious core to this, or religious inheritance in this idea of our individuality being paramount and our inward self being the important thing? 
Yeah, I'm often asked about religion. Many, you know, Danish ministers have said, "Well, you're actually just saying what we are trying to say uh, from a religious perspective," and people think it's interesting because you say it as a psychologist, <laughs> and and in a way they are, they are right. But I've tried to articulate my alternative to this uh, culture of self-improvement craze without you know attaching it to a particular religious outlook because i think if you do that then you really exclude many people from the the conversation so to say but i have this interest in religion in perhaps a slightly different way because i think that what has happened and i can say this this about psychology probably because i am a psychologist myself but we have made psychology more or less into a secular religion of self-realization so instead of you know listening to the absolute authority outside of ourselves uh, god we listen to ourselves we are told to believe in yourself and people used to say believe in god but now it's it's believe in yourself and salvation is no longer found by approaching god or, or you know helped by the priest as an interpreter of your life no it's found by you know self development realizing your true inner potentials in psychotherapy and life coaching sessions and, and and personal development so structurally i believe that psychology broadly conceived functions as a secular religion in this individualist society that we have but i think it's totally incapable of actually fulfilling the functions that it's given so if if i can say just one more thing about this because it's very important but also a bit difficult i i like to think in terms of Søren Kierkegaard the the national philosopher of denmark and he wrote about the aesthetic the ethical and the religious spheres of life and just to explain then i would say that my book is about the conflict between the aesthetic and the ethical between desire impulse doing what you like to do on the one hand that's the aesthetic and duty obligation stability commitment etc that's the ethical and and i concentrate on on that discussion and then obviously there is the third sphere of the religious which is something totally different and uh, i i try not to go into that I mean, one touchstone for your book, which we haven't really mentioned yet, but briefly to bring in, you, you, you go back much further than the Reformation to the, to the Stoics in classical Greece and Rome. I mean, what is it that makes them so attractive? One thing is that they are fun to read, even though they wrote uh, the ancient Greek Stoics first and then the Roman Stoics. The Romans are more famous. They wrote uh, hundreds and thousands of years ago, but they really speak to us. They write about common human problems problems of friendship of sexuality of mortality and you know almost like contemporary uh, self-help authors and that's why i i draw on the stoics because they they are in a way in the same genre as the self-help authors but they very often say the exact opposite so when modern self-help writers urge us to think positive do positive visualization imagine that whatever you want just imagine that you will uh, obtain it and then you, you are more likely to achieve it now the stoics would say the opposite they would recommend negative visualization which means thinking about the fact because it is a fact that whatever you have in your life your relationships your possessions even your own life is something that you will lose 
because you will lose it. You will lose everything. And for the Stoics, that would be a disciplining thought. It, it will discipline you. It would also make you grateful that you have it now, but it would also uh, tell you, well, not to seek new and different things all the time. It's sort of a cure against FOMO, you know, what, what people call the fear of missing out that almost all of us suffer from these days. So I think we need a, a dose, at least, of uh, Stoicism to discipline ourselves a little bit and, and, and think about what, what the Stoics would always begin with, memento mori, remember that you will die, <laughs> because that will sort of introduce a certain seriousness to life. Well, I think that's, that's all to the best, but I, I suppose these things go round, because as you say when quoting Marcus Aurelius in, in passing, you say, well, of course, his meditations is also known as to himself, you know, <laughs> so even he wasn't immune completely from navel-gazing. No, no, you're right. <laughs> Sven Brinkman, thank you very much indeed for your time. Thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you. If you enjoyed that, please do subscribe to our iTunes channel.